what is it like 3 4 a.m almost at this point huh <laughs> holy god are we really rock i know this is this is this is like the most rock and roll podcast we've ever done Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. We have made it to part four of our Bruce Springsteen series called 20th Century Boss, where we are taking a very dramatic drive <laughs> through one of the great discographies in rock history, and that is, of course, Bruce Springsteen's albums, particularly his the first 20 or so years of his career going from his start in the early 70s up through his uh, period in the late 90s where he was sort of adrift a little bit, but then he kind of turned it around and made this awesome singer-songwriter record, Ghost of Tom Joad. We're here to kind of take stock of that journey. How did Bruce get from this point where he was a scrawny little kid to this 40-something-year-old uh, American icon? And we're doing that by talking to some of the great singer-songwriters that he has influenced over the years, and, and we've had some great episodes so far. If you haven't heard them yet, I recommend checking them out. We had an episode with Brian Fallon of the Gaslight Anthem talking about the first two Bruce records, Greetings from Asbury Park, and The Wild and the Innocent and the East Street Shuffle. We had an episode talking about Born to Run with Jeff Rosenstock. We had an episode that just went up on Darkness on the Edge of Town with Julian Baker. And now we have reached the river a very critical record in Bruce Springsteen's career. It was released on October 17, 1980. Uh, it was his first number one album. It was uh, the first album to produce a top five hit. Of course, that song is Hungry Heart. And uh, it set Bruce up in the 1980s as a full-on arena rock attraction who would, in just a few years' time, become one of the biggest stadium rock attractions of all time. And yet I feel like this album is maybe a little underrated because of the albums that are around it. You know, you have Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, which precede it. And then you have Nebraska and Born in the USA, which come right after it. And uh, if you compare The River to those albums, it seems a little less perfect, you know, than those records because it's a double album. In a way, you could say that it's a transitional record. Unlike those other albums, which are very much their own worlds, you know, they, they were quantum leaps past whatever record came before it. You know, like Born to Run is a very different record from the first two Bruce albums. Of course, Darkness is very different from Born to Run. And then you have Nebraska, which is totally unlike any Bruce Springsteen album up to that point. And then there's Born in the USA, the superstar record, which just shot him off to another uh, universe. The River, meanwhile, is this record that, you know, sonically, it, it, it kind of extends what happens on Darkness on the Edge of Town. In a way, you could almost confuse some of the songs that appear on this record for songs that were on Darkness, in part because, you know, a lot of these songs were written around the same time. You know, Independence Day, for instance, one of the great tracks on The River, it originated from the Darkness on the Edge of Town sessions. It's not quite as singular, maybe, as uh, those other records. 
but it is interesting listening to it, I guess, in comparison to Darkness, because you can hear how on the river, Bruce figured out that he could commingle the sort of joyous side of his music with the more dark and thoughtful side. So you have songs on this record like Point Blank or the title track, The River, which seem to sort of continue the mood and the themes of Darkness on the Edge of Town, but then you have a lot of, of these bar band rock songs, like Out in the Street or Jackson Cage or, you know, Crush on You, you know, some of these, uh, frankly, some of these B-level songs that exist uh, on that first half of the record, which are reminiscent of the earlier Springsteen, the more sort of straight-ahead rock and roll guy. And He's not only able to do that on the same record, but he's also starting to do that more in the space of a single song. And what would become, I think, a formula that was common in Bruce Springsteen songs, which is you have an upbeat melody or upbeat-sounding music married to a lyric that is very depressing, you know, which is something that he really blew up on Born in the USA. You hear that in Glory Days, you hear that in Dancing in the Dark, you hear that throughout that record he was starting to really perfect that on the river and Hungry Heart being uh, the quintessential example of that. This song that is such a great sing-along in concert is in reality about a drifter who can't commit to a relationship and he ends up leaving his family in the lurch, which sounds like a song that you would hear on Darkness, but it's married to music that's as uplifting as anything you hear on Born to Run. Another interesting thing about the river is that you're starting to hear a new strain of sort of folk and country influences that was unique in Bruce's music that is coming out in songs like Wreck on the Highway, the album closing song, which is one of my favorite songs on the river, and would really come into full blossom, of course, on the next record, Nebraska. But if you listen to Wreck on the Highway, if you just strip that song down, that, that could have very easily been on Nebraska. In retrospect, when we look back on the river, it, it, it seems like the record that has everything that Bruce did up to that point. And then it's also pointing the way forward to what he was going to do pretty much through the duration of the 1980s. While at the same time, maybe not being the best example of any of those things, or at least not the number one example that you would point to. Uh, you know, if you were making a list of your favorite Bruce Springsteen records. Um, there is one area, though, that I, I would say that The River is unequivocally the best of Springsteen, which is I think this is the best E Street Band album. I don't think there's a better showcase for the playing of that band or a representation of what they were as a unit. To me, it feels in a way like a peak of that union in the sense that I don't think it would ever feel as tight uh, I don't think their union would feel as united as it does on this record ever again. You know, after this record, obviously, you have Nebraska, uh, which, you know, was Bruce working by himself, not intending to make a record, but making a record nonetheless. And I think in that moment, realizing that he could make a record on his own. Um, you know, he did make Born in the USA after that, which was a big E Street Band record. But 
it's almost like the seed was planted in his head that he could make records on his own and he could play a lot of the instruments on his own on his on his own records and he wouldn't have to argue with people he wouldn't have to please people he wouldn't have to have saxophone solos on his records if he didn't want to anymore uh, he could he could do whatever he wanted you really start to see that come into full flower on tunnel of love and then of course on uh, those early 90s records lucky town and human touch but on uh, the river there's still an innocence there's still this uh, sense that like the E Street Band and Bruce need each other an equal amount. It really makes this record a joy to listen to in that sense. So to discuss this record with me, I decided to call on someone that I knew was not only a Bruce Springsteen fan, but is accustomed to epic musical statements. And who else was better to talk about that than Patrick Stickles, who was born and raised in Glenrock, New Jersey. Uh, in 2005, he started a band called Titus Andronicus, one of the most acclaimed and intensely adored indie rock bands of the last 15 years or so. In 2010, Titus Andronicus put out The Monitor, which is an album that yours truly called the best rock record of the decade on this podcast. You can go back and find our episode on the best rock records of the decade so far. If you want to hear more about that, uh, the latest Titus Andronicus album, A Productive Cough, comes out March 2nd, which I believe is just a couple of days after this podcast post. So definitely pick up that record when it comes out. Patrick and I had a great conversation. I talked to most people on the phone for this, but I actually got to talk to Patrick in person. I happened to be in New York in January, and Patrick was like, come on over to my place. We'll talk about the river. And I ended up getting there. My flight was late, so I didn't get there until like 10.30 at night. So we were up late. He's smoking cigarettes. We're drinking some beers. And uh, we're just talking about the river. And we talked about the river for a long time. Uh, But it was a blast. And uh, let me tell you, if you ever get a chance to hang out at Patrick Stickle's place to talk about Springsteen records, you should do it. It's a very good time. <laughs> and hopefully that will come across in this conversation. So here's me and Patrick Stickles talking about the river. So like when I asked you to talk about the river, you know, my thought was, okay, I know Patrick likes Bruce Springsteen. I know he's from New Jersey. I know that he is prone to sprawling musical statements. So maybe he would have something to say about the most sprawling Bruce Springsteen record. But when I asked you, I mean, you were very generous and you said yes and you were down to do it, but you admitted that The River was only like your fifth favorite Springsteen record. And I'm curious, what are the four ahead of it? And did you revise your opinion at all after I asked you to revisit the record and talk about it? Well, my opinion mostly remains the same. If anything, my my homework has given me a slightly lesser opinion of it. But if I had to name my top five right off the top of the dome, I would put Darkness on the Edge of Town at number one. I would put Born to Run and Nebraska probably right about neck and neck for number two and three. Born in the USA, probably number four and... Mm-hmm. And then the river at number five, with a nice, very strong honorable mention to Tunnel of Love, and an extra honorable mention to Human Touch, which I think people have really got the wrong idea about. But that's a that's something for another podcast, oh, I suppose. Man. 
I know. I knew, you know, when you asked me for this, that there was going to be enormous competition to talk about the human touch and lucky town era. <laughs> so I didn't even, didn't even try to grab for that. Well, see, like now I, I wish I'd known that because the person I convinced basically, basically to do that, like I had to beg this person to do it because that was, you know, people were not lining up to do that. I mean, I want to, I, want, I kind of want to go down that path with you right now, but I feel like we should focus on the river for now because I feel like yeah, if we get done fine. the human touch thing. But you said that revisiting the record, you actually maybe like the record a little bit less now. Like, why? Why is that the case? Well, maybe that was unfair <laughs> of me. I mean, the river is great, but uh, it does suffer from a little bit of the double album syndrome, where some of the deep cuts are maybe not quite as strong and you know you know some people would say that maybe it could have done with slightly more judicious editing but as we'll discuss you know that would be kind of antithetical to the whole spirit of the enterprise and to try and whittle it down would really sort of defeat the purpose of what bruce it seems was trying to achieve with this double LP statement. Well, I mean, like what you said with your ranking, I think that's a fairly common opinion. I think pretty, pretty pedestrian ranking. I gotta well, say. not pedestrian. I mean, I think there's a reason for that. I mean, I, you know, I think if you talk to people about their favorite Springsteen records, darkness in Nebraska tend to be in the conversation near the top. Born to run is up there. Born in the USA is an interesting record because I feel like for a while it wasn't cool to like that record just because it was so huge. And then it's come back around where people have sort of come back to that record. And the production on it is maybe slightly dated. Right. Although that's now. come back too because there's a lot of, I feel like that there's things on that record, the sort of synthy Heartland Rock thing of that record has come back in a way in the last with your, maybe with your buddies the war on drugs you mean. well yeah that that would be an example or uh like the uh, war on drugs kurt vile i guess would be the two most obvious examples of gated that. reverb on the snare <laughs> exactly um but you know because like when i've been when i went back to the river you know before talking to you about it the thing that occurred to me is that it does feel um like a transitional record very much so. You know, as much as it is this very big record and there's, you know, there's 20 songs on it and Bruce was very prolific at this time. I mean, he wrote, according to that documentary, the, the, the Ties That Bind that came a couple of years ago, they, I think he had like 95 solo demos and over 100 demos with the E Street Band. So just an enormous amount of material that he generated. Um, it's the one record from the 70s and 80s that doesn't feel like a major step forward from the previous record where like wild and the innocent is much grander than greetings born to run is much grander and you know a much bigger statement than the wild and the innocent darkness is such a different record and then of course you have nebraska after the river very different born in the usa the big superstar record and then tunnel of love the you know Guy about to turn forty, writing lovelorn songs. Record, divorce the, album. The divorce album, and then you have the river, which 
you know, sonically, it feels like maybe an extension of like what he was doing on on Darkness. Um, I mean, I think it's maybe like the most E Street Band record. Very E Street Bandy. Yeah, and I would credit that a lot to the introduction of Stephen Van Zant to the production team, right? Along with Springsteen and Landau, John Landau is also manager, right? Much scrappier, you know. It was all recorded live, I think, for the most part at uh, Studio A at the Power Station right here in New York City, as my. My research has reminded me this past couple of days. Yeah, by the way, there's like a stack of Springsteen yes, books yes. in front of us, Which, and you've been reading, and I'm very impressed. I don't think anyone else that I'll be talking to has, will have done as much research as you did. Well, I mean, these are, uh, these are very well-loved books that I'm holding here. Right. All you listeners at home, we got, uh, of course, Springsteen's Born to Run autobiography. Yes. We have the similarly titled Born to Run, the Bruce Springsteen story by Dave Marsh. Yes. Which is, uh, this edition is contemporaneous to the album that we're discussing. And in fact, it says here on the cover, podcast listeners, it it notes that this edition has been completely updated to include the river and the 1980 to 1981 tour. So this was published when the river was exciting news. And one of the classic tours of his career, like I think 140 dates. Very, very high point for the E Street Band. And then, of course, we got the 33 and 3rd book of Born in the USA by Jeffrey Himes, which is not, obviously, not about the river, but it touches on the river and why Mr. Himes feels that uh, it's a very strong album in much the same way as Born in the USA is. Shall I explain why he thinks it's uh, strong in the same way? Strong, yeah, how's that? Well, Mr. Heim says that, you know, some of those more favorite Springsteen albums from the pedestrian top five rankings (laughs) we discussed before, such as Darkness or Nebraska or even Born to Run are maybe slightly narrow in their view of life, that they're maybe a little bit more one-dimensional, like Darkness in particular has an unrelentingly bleak view. Right. And uh, we know from uh, the great uh, box set and the Promise, the outtake collection, that Bruce had a lot of other songs at the time of Darkness, you know, as you said, he did, a, you know, there was a lot of very prolific period of songwriting around the river and the Darkness album was much the same way. But he left a lot of, a lot of stuff off that album, a lot of very strong songs. A lot of popular songs. Popular songs, yeah, because he wanted to go for a really particular concise perspective and cast aside a lot of the more upbeat kind of party jams right in favor of the more uh, samurai type right. songs as he described them and i was gonna say yeah he's called it the samurai record and certainly nebraska is another it's probably even more so of a samurai record yes yeah, so although, although nebraska's got open all night on it which is kind of like a slightly more lighthearted take, even though it's got the same Spartan four-track production on it. Right. But Darkness is really not a 
not a sliver of light coming through any of those clouds. But Mr. Himes in his 33 and a third book says that this is actually to the detriment of the albums, the albums that we're discussing. Because it is too one-dimensional. And it was on the river where he started to introduce the more lighthearted, jovial, more comedic songs that, you know, this likes of which had been a part of his live show for a long time. But it wasn't until the river that he started to put those on the record and present what Mr. Himes thinks is a more three-dimensional view of life, you know, encompassing a wider spectrum of emotions, much in the same way that Born in the USA did. Well, he's like, he's talked about like how with the river you have these sort of foundational ballads that are on that record where you have like Independence Day, you have Point Blank, you have obviously The River, uh, you have Wreck on the Highway, Stolen Car, these uh, very brooding, serious songs. And then you have, like you were saying, these party jams. And like he's talked about how the party jams are like the songs that the guys in the serious songs listen to like when they're going to go blow off steam. Like if they're going to, like the guy in Stolen Car, maybe he stops at a bar and listens to a band and that band is playing crush on you or they're playing you can look but you better not touch and that totality that you're talking about i mean he talked about that did you see the the river tour that he did a couple years ago that uh that that 2016 thing because he would always do this rap at the beginning where he was like i want an album that i wanted to make an album that had sex and love and sadness and you know everything that we had in our live show I, i wanted that on this record so that kind of speaks to that expansiveness that you were just talking about, sort of in comparison to the other records. That I mean, I think like that samurai thing, it's so romantic and it's so alluring that and it's and that's true for me too, like because I'm a darkness guy. Like if I was gonna pick my favorite Springsteen record, it'd be Darkness. Which by the way, Darts on the Edge of Town. Is there like a be- is there a better album title than Darkness on the Edge of Town? It's like not, not how, that I, I can name like, like that. And al- he loves that phrase too. When I was looking over the lyric sheet for the river, which I just happened to have here, he speaks of a lot of different stuff happening on the edge of town. There's like th- at least three occurrences of it. Like in drive all night, he says there's machines and there's fire baby waiting on the edge of town. <laughs> there's uh in stolen car, I met a little girl and I settled down in a little house out on the edge of town. Oh, there's at least a couple others here. I won't bore your listeners. No, that, I've never it, noticed that. That's a really because like in New Jersey, like it, is is the edge of town a very mysterious place? Like, is this where people go? To because like because I'm from Wisconsin and the edge of town is usually like where the Walmart is or uh, where you know the mall is. It's not a very glamorous place. Or, or 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 not glamorous, but like it's not very romantic. And the or, town, the town in New Jersey that I grew up in was only about one point two square miles, so almost the whole thing was pretty <laughs> much the edge, and they, it wasn't terribly romantic. Was it dark at night? Maybe, <laughs> but well, let's 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 talk about the record because you 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 talked about how there's filler tracks and some real clunkers on there. There's some clunkers on there, and I know that. Like when we when we were talking earlier, 
uh, you know, kind of getting ready to do the podcast, just talking about just the abundance of outtakes and songs that didn't make the record and how you could make a, a shorter version of this record if you wanted to, or you could make a totally different version of this record, similar to what you were saying, like with the promise, how there was all this material that he didn't put on darkness and on the edge of town that resulted. That it's like, a, it's a completely different record. Like the promises uh, is a much poppier record. There's some dark songs on there, but it, it feels maybe more in a born to run vein than darkness ended up being and listening to the outtakes of uh from the river there's i mean he could have made this kind of great pop rock record that would that would have just been all great e street band jams if he'd wanted to do that right like a similarly one-dimensional kind of anti-darkness right. a certain lightness on the edge of town <laughs> possibly an unbearable lightness or like the morning after the darkness on the edge of town um, but uh, I mean, look. right? Because you'll notice that he, you know, wanted to get this more three-dimensional approach for the river, which seems to be like kind of a response to darkness's very single-minded view. But then when it came time to do Nebraska, he seemed to say, "Oh, well, forget about that. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my one-dimensional thing again." Right. Right. Um, so there is there is an alternate reality where he put out the perfect ten tracks of. Nothing but party rock and jams. And there's at least 10 of those on this River album. For well, sure. Well, let's, okay, I mean, let's go through the album here a little bit. We don't have to go track by track, but like what? what we, do, the, we, do have the, uh, we do have the LP right here. And we do we have could the, if we wanted we to. We could. I mean, okay, let's go side we by don't, side. We don't have to. Let's go side by side here. Side one, I, I feel like is, is a strong side. You've got. Um, you know, the ties that bind you have Shirley, Darling, Jackson Cage, uh, Two Hearts, and Independence Day. Very strong side. It's a very strong side. I would say... Hardly a clunker on there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like two of my favorite songs on the record are on this side, which would be Two Hearts and Independence Day. Uh, two of my favorite Springsteen songs of all time. Uh, Independence Day I love because I have father issues. And... <laughs> That song, that Doug Springsteen was a, was a bit of a tough nut to crack. Well, yeah, and he's as well, Bruce explains in his autobiography. Well, and Independence Day is a song about uh, deciding that you're never going to have the relationship with your dad that you want to have, and you learn to accept that, and you also learn to walk away, which I feel like is a really brave song for him to write because I feel like usually in pop culture or literature or films. Like the resolution is that you find a way to like make it with your with your dad. You don't decide just to say, you know, no, I'm walking away. So for Cut me, it off, rip it off like a band aid. Yeah, it's like a real like real ten like real tenon bombs or even nothing like, we can say is going to change anything. Now. Exactly, it's a it's a decision that he's made that, and I and I and he accepts it. It's a very and I, yeah. I don't want to get too emotional here, but I have to, I've spent time in my car listening to Independence Day. And it is, the, it is superior to any talk I've actually had with my real dad. So spring, that, that, so that's me exposing my like unhealthy father issues in my personal life and also my father issues with Bruce Springsteen. It's, very, uh, it's a very real thing. Uh, and, and that's also a contrast from Darkness because you have Adam Raised the Cane, mm. which is a very angry song about his dad. 
which may be perhaps he wouldn't have been able to write Independence Day had he not gone through that. Exactly. It's the, the stages of grief. And then you have Two Hearts, which is, you know, one of the rockers. But it's also a song, I think it kind of sums up what he was going for on this record. He's talked about how, you know, he he made this record as he turned 30 and he was thinking about what always it a tough thing for a rock and roll. Always a tough thing, especially then, you know, like where there were, you know, had scarcely been done before. It's like now it's like not as big of a deal to be a 30 something year old rock dude. But then I think it although was, we should note that uh, the Rolling Stones were on just about turning 30. That's true. When they made Exile on Main Street. That's true. So maybe there's some kind of connection between that age and the impulse to make the sprawling well, you were, double LP. It's funny you say this because you were 31 when you made your sprawling double LP. Well, I was I was getting ready to turn thirty when I made my sprawling triple. Oh, LP, it's a triple. Lest That's we, true. Lest we forget. It's true. Double LP. Well, I did that when I was twenty four. That's nothing true. to me. It's true. So you like, you even like you you raised the ante no, on I, the whole uh, thing. I try, <laughs> but like you know, like with two hearts, he was he was in, you know that song is you know because Bruce is. Uh, He's talked a lot about how during this time, especially, he was a loner and he would hang out a lot by himself, writing. You know, he, he didn't even hang out with his band very much. And in that song, he's talking about what it means to find your soulmate and how that makes your life better. That you can't just live your life by yourself. You have to uh, try to find someone to live it with. And that's always very poignant to me when he when I hear that song because he hadn't actually found that person yet. Although I think it's significant that that song is one of his most thorough duets with Miami Steve. And where they share the mic. Right, right. It's always a very... Miami Steve is almost on every single line. That's little Steven Van Zandt, all you listeners at home. Well, back in his first tenure in the E Street Band, he was Miami Steve. Because he had been to Miami, which was further away than any of the other E Street Band members I think who had gone, never been south of Richmond, Virginia at that point. Right. Like he, I think he was the only one. I think he'd only been there once or something, but they, they called him Miami Steve. But uh, I mean, I think there's a good argument to be made that some of Bruce's best love songs are about Miami Steve. Sure. Like No Surrender and uh, Bobby, Bobby Jean. Jean. Bobby Jean, I think especially. But Two and Hearts. The fact that they are together on the mic, lips nearly close enough to kiss exactly. exactly but that's like kind of you know a lot of these bruce love songs are less about romance and more about uh companionship yeah and finding someone to stand by your side as you face down the tempest that is this life of ours hey guys we'll get back to our conversation in a minute i just want to tell you about something i'm really excited about which is the release of my new book twilight of the gods a journey to the end of classic rock it comes on may 8th and it's available wherever you like to buy books twilight of the gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now if you're like me you grew up listening to zeppelin pink floyd the beatles and the stones even though it had been years even decades since those groups were in their primes or even still together How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. 
Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. Okay, let's get back to the episode. What stands out to you on side one? Uh, is- two Hearts definitely is one of, the, one of the greats. And I like Jackson Cage also very much. I know that certain pundits would say that that's more of a filler track. No, not at all. But I'm a big fan. I don't, I don't think the filler uh, comes into play at all on side one. I think uh, I think every track, you know, has its uh, purpose and place. You know, Sherry Darling is, you know, like what you were saying before, more of like a lighthearted, almost comic song. Which is another one that they track during the darkness sessions. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine Sherry Darling on darkness? Between like factory and you know, streets of fire, and then you have Sherry not, Darling. Probably would not have worked. Not. But the 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 jubilance of Sherry Darling does kind of mask a slightly darker undercurrent because this is another one of Bruce's songs about relationships that are kind of on the rocks, that are maybe not going to last. Right. It's a slightly tortured. You know, these are people that are ostensibly in love, but they're not exactly always getting along. Right. Which I'm sure we can all relate to. But definitely the the mark of Stephen Van Zandt on that song. You know, you, you More great harmonies from Steve. And also just the production style of it sounding very loose, very live. You know, you, you brought up how Stephen Van Zandt was one of the producers of this record with John Landau and you know the purpose of that was you know John Landau is this very sort of with a very honorable mention to this uh, Chuck Plotkin guy yes unless we forget he didn't get an official producer credit but Bruce in his autobiography does speak of him as part of the production sort team. of like a so technical us, wizard guy let us not forget Chuck Plotkin and while we're talking about it let's just mention since I got the uh the album the 12 inch out here yeah that these guys all do appear on the album art. Yeah. You know, they got these, uh, you folks at home that maybe don't have this 12 inch, the uh, inner sleeves for the the discs have got these very nice uh, photo layouts. And we can see, I guess one of these guys has got to be Chuck Plotkin. Plotkin is the guy that looks like uh, Kenny Rogers. This guy here. Yeah, that's Plotkin. Kenny I'm- Rogers, one of the artists that kept Bruce uh, from rising up on the top five. When Hungry Heart oh, was made it the, its billboard. Was it The Gambler? It was, uh, was a song it? called uh, Lady, oh, I yeah. think. Lady. <laughs> did a little bit of a little I'm bit your knight in shining armor and I look. Do you know that song? Not, I mean. See, the, my not, mom loved Kenny Rogers. around too much, but I did. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, not to bounce the side too before it's time, but Hungry Heart was uh bruce's first top 10 single right and he, under his own name that is because right. obviously in 1977 manford man and his earth band had gone to number one with the cover of blinded by the light right a spot that springsteen would never reach with one of his own recordings but uh, yeah, he has been to number one as a songwriter and he gave away you know, because the night to Patty Smith, and then there was fire. Yes, but I sisters. but I did read that that because the night only peaked at number thirteen. Oh, okay, which is not bad. <laughs> that doesn't the sneeze at, but it's not exactly number five. Well, I know that was like an issue, was. like for Landau, because he was he was pissed that 
Bruce kept giving away these songs that were potential hits, and it was partly because Bruce was sort of ambivalent about having hits. Although, because and, the night would have fit very nicely into the aesthetics of the darkness. Oh album. yeah, well that and tor- he performed it very much on that tour as well. Right. It, it yeah, that song totally sounds like a bridge from Born to Run to Darkness, where it has that beautiful piano melody, which is kind of reminiscent of like a Born to Run type track, but lyrically and i guess patty smith wrote a lot of the lyrics i mean it has more of a mature kind of poetic sound to it uh than a lot of the, the born to run lyrics but like although bruce continued to perform his own original lyrics on the tour oh that's right that's right so because like hungry heart like he wanted to give that to the ramones Did right you and this? can you can you imagine the alternate history that could have resulted from that i wonder if that song could have gone to number five with a Ramones recording. Yeah. <laughs> and if so, what that would have done for the Ramones career, who, you know, very much struggled for a hit single. Well, because presumably that would have been on end of the century, the Phil Spector record, because that would have been 80 Phil Spector, years. one of Bruce's biggest influences, you funnily think, enough. You think that Phil, I mean, because that was a, a famously contentious session, like where Phil supposedly pulled a gun on the Ramones in the studio and all that. But you'd think that like, Ramones, Phil Spector doing Hungry Heart, that would have, you'd think all the pieces would have been there, possibly, for a hit. But like what they did with Bruce is they sped up his voice so he would sound more boyish right, right. on the track. So they kind of made him sound younger and more sort of pop friendly. You know, whenever I hear Hungry Heart, you know that John Lennon song, uh, Just Like Starting Over? Wow, you mean the song that ca- that was number one on December 27th, 1980, when... Uh... When Hungry Heart peaked at number five, what was it? I have the whole top five. Was was down was just here. like starting over? I didn't know. Just well, like starting over was number one on the twenty seventh. Okay, because that was, was like, its debut. That was like right after spot. John Lennon died. Right, he just he died. My notes tell me December eighth. Yes, nineteen eighty. So he probably coasted on a little <laughs> bit of not to take anything away from that beautiful song, obviously, which deserved to be. They, number one that song but, kind of reminds me of hungry heart they both kind of had that 50s you know piano type vibe to it i feel like there's there's a similar spirit for those songs i mean you know just to just to be, love, just to be complete all you listeners at home it was leo sayer and neil diamond oh really that rounded out the top five so a lot of uh, a lot of giants in there <laughs> So, so Leo and Neil were ahead of Hungry Heart? That's right. They were at, at number two and three, week. and then Ken, our friend Kenny Rogers at four. So are you pro-Hungry Heart? I love Hungry Heart. Yeah, I love Hungry me? Heart, It's too. fantastic. And it's I, got the backup vocals from Flo and Eddie. Yeah, it's a beautiful on the, song. Uh, on the, from the Turtles. And uh, I guess it's also potentially worth noting that that was the only song of the album that was mixed by our friend Bob Clearmount. Yes, all you listeners at home have heard a lot of his mixes at the top of the charts. And Closing Time by Semisonic comes to mind. He did. Uh, he did that song. I mean, because he, he did. Of course, he did Born in the USA, and he. I mean, he did tons of records. Um, so side two. Um, where let's go. Where some of the clunkers. Let's start go to back here. Okay, play. so we have Hungry Heart at the top. We have Out in the Street. We have Fantastic Crush on You. Song. Crush on You is sort of, it's funny because like in the documentary that ties that bind, Bruce singles out Crush on You as a song that 
could have been taken off. Absolutely. And he mentions roulette. The biggest, the biggest clunker that we've seen. On I mean, I don't so hate. Far. Maybe the biggest clunker in his career up to that really? point. Really? Wow. See, I would say like, well, Billy Circus story or something. Oh, yeah. Would be yeah. Worse than yeah that. Okay. In but, his, in his like, in his real career since his <laughs> ascent. Right. Post nineteen seventy five, post born to run is sent into the mainstream of the glory years. I mean, he never threw out a clunker like that. But boy, if he didn't top it two tracks later with "I Want to Marry You," holy cow, <laughs> is that a, that's the biggest clunker of all. I I appreci- that makes Wild Billy's Circus Story sound like I don't know. I appreciated sure. on that river tour that he did in sixteen. This I, is why this is I, why I, I have a have a have a chip on my shoulder about this album from having to listen to "I Want to Marry You." <laughs> Jesus Christ, what a piece of crap! I don't I, see. I I appreciate you're, that song you're more. A, you're a married man. Though. I'm a married man, but also seeing it live made me appreciate it more because he kind of brought out more of the sort of like soul singer aspects of it. Like because the arrangement on this album is a little is a little bit Jimmy Jimmy Buffetty. <laughs> on top of the lyrical content. or, or it, it kind of reminds me of like Greece, you know and like Hungry Heart as much as I love it also has a little bit of like a Greece feel to it like that sort of 50s revival thing that was happening in the late 70s which is also true of just like starting over the John Lennon song and I well, and I like the Grease soundtrack so I, I, I loved that as a kid so like I mean that's not a total knock. It just, you know, it, it is in that sort of more sort of 50s pop yeah, but, revival Yeah, but Hungry thing. Heart kind of shines a light on the rotten, well, the rotten core of that 50s dream. Because this exactly. is the guy that's abandoned his family. The lyric, exactly. The lyrics are great. Yeah, very it's dark. One, it's one of the songs on this album that makes me think of, wonder if Bruce had read a lot of John Updike. You familiar with any oh, of his yeah, books? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got this book, Rabbit Run, which is about a uh, disgruntled ex-high school basketball star, a character very much like we could have seen on the Glory Days song, and how he goes out and abandons his family on a whim and gets involved with prostitutes and stuff. And I don't know. Hungry Heart seems like a very John Updike-y sort of song. That's it's very just astute. my, it's my well, you know. Did you did you just come up with that now, or did you think? No, about I've been it? I've been thinking about it the last the last couple of days. That's great. I've never seen that comparison. That that's a very good comparison. Though. I Stolen like Stolen Car is kind of the the same way, because that he's talking about uh, what does he say? He's kind I of met talk- a little girl. Blah blah blah. There's a lot of little girl right. on this record, which is a little bit of a, a sticking point for me. And that that I don't feel like that has aged well. Yeah, that's maybe a rock and roll trope. Sweet little sixteen. Right. She was just seventeen. You know what I mean. But in twenty in twenty seventeen, it doesn't hold up as well. You know. At Maybe first, I thought it was just restlessness that would fade as time went by and our love grew deep. In the end, it was something more. I guess it tore us apart and made us weep. I mean, you do you know? feel like that's uh, that he's like sort of uh, belittling? The woman in the song by calling her a little girl, or is he like underscoring this guy's sort of sentimentality, thinking back, and now he's like, my, you know, our relationship is terrible now, but like back then, like I met her and we were both sweet kids. Right, right. Calling back, to remembering a more innocent time. Maybe that could be. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm being a, a Bruce apologist with that could one. Be. But okay, so 
crush on you like going back to that documentary like bruce singled that song out he's like that didn't need to be on there and he mentioned the song roulette as being like one of the great sort of songs from this period that didn't make a record like are you familiar with that song absolutely and like, i've got a note here about uh bruce's involvement in the musics united for safe energy yes benefit was- concerts of 1979 which was about a uh, nuclear disarmament with Jackson Brown and I think Tom Petty played those yes, shows. Yes, which produced the No Nukes album. Yes. I feel like this is pretty significant. Like this is the beginning of the the political engagement that Bruce would get more and more involved in as his career went on. That was and also a- those concerts featured the live debut of the title track, The River. Yes, and which is also on this side. Okay, so, so we have You Can Look But You Better Not Touch, which I, which I think is a it's a, a, fun a fine song. song, but maybe a little bit slight. A little slight. And also, know? I feel like they did a different arrangement of that on the Tunnel of Love tour. Yes. Which I think was uh, was superior. You and, listeners at home, go out and dig that up. The Tunnel of Love Express tour, I should say, of 1987. I Want to Marry You. We've already Ugh. talked about that. And okay, so let's get to the- Although, I, I, I should say that like uh, the the good thing about this album- is that its scope is so wide and the poles, the emotional poles of it are so far apart that even though I Want to Marry You is maybe not such a great song and maybe it actually totally sucks, <laughs> it is, it's worthwhile and it's valuable that it's on here because it does give an added dimension to the the spectrum right i of think things that he's discussing so you know if you have a song like that which is a very romantic ode to marriage i suppose that acts as kind of a interesting like sort of diametrically opposed thing to a song like stolen car for example where yeah. this is a guy that's abandoned his family so you or even the of, river yeah coming right after it which you know, you mentioned he played for the first time at that new nuke show, and his sister was in the audience when he played. And, yeah, was, and she he, said, "That's my life." Exactly. He which wrote Bruce this, said in his book was the best review that he ever got. But like, she was sort of pissed off at first because she's in the audience, and okay, so you know his uh, his sister. I think her name is Ginny. She had like her first kid when she was eighteen. It's like basically the story you hear in this song that you know they uh, they hooked up early and they had all these kids and uh i don't know if it if her reality was as dark as it is in the song i mean the idea of the the river is basically about uh people their dreams dying you know is a dream alive is a dream alive it doesn't come true or is it something worse you know that's the heavy stuff heavy stuff so he's singing this depressing song about his sister his sister's in the audience she's like that's my life and twenty thousand people are hearing it and thinking wow what a terrible life this person is living in this song yeah, but bruce's sister didn't get the worst of it at the uh musicians united for safe energy concerts because of course we remember the incident with the photographer yes lynn goldsmith his ex-girlfriend yes who bruce had uh had told the uh, the management at these concerts, his ex-girlfriend, Lynn Goldsmith, was going to be the official photographer for these shows. And he said, hey, look, 
I don't really, I don't need much, but all I ask is that you don't let Lynn Goldsmith <laughs> shoot my performance because it's going to psych me out. I don't want to see any former lovers out there when I'm trying to do my thing. And then at one of these nights, I believe the book said that he was performing Rosalita at the time, and he starts gesturing to the security teams of the front row, like, hey, wait, 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 go, to, go take care of the thing down there that I don't like. And they went around looking, thinking that like somebody was fighting down there, but they didn't find anything, so they didn't take any action. And Bruce took it upon himself to go out to the front row and pull Lynn Goldsmith with the camera out of there and pull her up on stage. And he got on the microphone and he said, this is my ex-girlfriend. And then he escorted her off the stage and out of the building. And it was a, a rare, mean-spirited moment. I was going to say the I, E Street on stage history, which I, is usually all, you know, even in its in its most emotionally bleak moments is a good hearted, uplifting exercise. I know there's not many stories you read about Bruce Springsteen where you're like, oh, he was kind of an asshole in this situation. But that that is the one of the rare instances where you're like, Bruce, but, you know, he's human. He was being a little bit of a prick. Yeah. But like, yeah, like you say, he's got feelings. Well, I guess I mean what I read was that he turned thirty. I think that like the day of that show, or like someone brought like a birthday cake up for him, and it really bothered him. So I think he was already upset about turning thirty, and then he saw his ex girlfriend and blew his stack. I don't blew know. Blew stack sometimes, I guess. You're in the wrong there, but uh, the river. But yeah, roulette, great song. <laughs> Probably the most. I was reviewing that in my research for this and that's got to be like probably the most intense oh yeah e street performance of them all but maybe no. breakneck pace yeah heavy subject matter nuclear errors occurring he was a very much inspired by the three mile island incident of the previous year well like, which i've read was only like you know small a short distance from his uh his his farm Jersey at that time. Great opening line of that song, too. They left the toys out in the yard. It's a great line. What I heard about that song, too, was that little like Miami Steve. I almost said little Steven. Was not little at this point. Not little. He's just Miami. He was coaching up the band because you know, he wanted them to play really intense. Like He wanted them to play like a punk band, basically, on that song. And that they were really encouraging Max Weinberg to play like Keith Moon. And you can hear that on this record. There's like it's very busy playing by Max you know, relative to the other records. A lot of fills on a lot of the songs. And like John Landau uh, didn't like that kind of playing. I mean, that was sort of the tension that Bruce was going for by having both of those guys produce the record. Because right, Stephen right. was this, I mean, he the still locker. is. The, the rocker. underground the, garage. The underground garage. And even then. And he Landau was, more the pop. It pop and, all, and also like soul music and like he loved the sort of perfection of like those Stax records like where you had Booker T and the MGs who were just in the pocket and no frills and you know just perfect playing uh, you know and great singing and just great sounding records or like those you know, Aretha Franklin records uh, from the late 60s um, and uh, but they almost like John Lando wanted to get rid of uh Max Weinberg and hired this guy Russ Kunkel who played on like 
all the L.A. rock records wow. of the late 70s. Yeah, he played on like Crosby, Stills, and Nash records. And- it's funny because in Bruce's book, he speaks about the, the California production techniques of that time and how they favored a lot of multi-track separation and isolating right. all the instruments. And Bruce and Steve seemed to have an idea that they were going to try and go for the opposite of that. Yeah, they wanted more of that kind of... The, wanted to hear the room. Exactly. A little kind bit of, more. Like that, which, that, which ended up biting them in the ass <laughs> in the mixing process. Right. After Bob Clearmountain had had enough of them after Hungry Heart. So let's go Poor to... Poor Chuck Plotkin. Yes, that's why he has all those gray hairs in his beard. He's trying to... Poor bastard. Trying to... And also just assimilate... These contrasting ideas of garage rock and soul music perfection that Bruce wanted simultaneously. And Bruce really wanted to have it all. He wanted to have as, it all. As we move between these two sleeves, though, and yeah. I encourage your listeners at home to go out and try and seek out this 12-inch if you can. Yeah, I love it. Because it. it's a really nice product. Let's just notice on each of these sleeves, there's, a, there's like a... a a wide portrait of the E Street Band. And let's just notice that Miami Steve is striking exactly the same pose <laughs> in both of these photos. He's got his hands in his pocket holding back a long coat. He had really decided at some point before this photo shoot that that was really how he looked the best. Well, and like the, I like how in the band photo on the uh, side three and four sleeve that Steven is in the middle. Well, I guess Bruce and Steve are in the middle, but like, if you didn't know who was who, you'd be like, "Well, Steve's Steve. the Steve's the boss." Yeah, he's the boss, and Bruce is like his his little sidekick, his like, manservant. But they're always standing together. And then Clarence, it's like, and Bruce and Clarence are also side by side, right? Also, calling back to the born and born to run. I cover. guess like yeah, Federici and Talon are always on the outside, on either side. Then you got Max. In the professor, Roy. Looking great. So I, I, it's interesting. I mean, because they do look like uh, they could be like Sopranos extras or something. I mean, obviously. Especially, was. especially with Bruce's uh, hairdo <laughs> in this era. And he had the great sideburns, too. He, he had a nice look going on. But he was really skinny. as long as we're noticing that, let's just notice that the cover... Is a completely different guy because this is uh, the cover portrait of Bruce on the River album. This is an outtake from the Darkness on the Edge of Town photo shoot. I didn't know that. that. This guy, Frank Stefanko, Frank Stefanko, something like that, that he took. Same, same session. But on the inner sleeve, we see Bruce with uh, his more more of a pompadour that's more of an elvis look which i think is very telling oh yeah uh, i think i think he was starting to embrace being a big star right his icon status and let's let's just pull out let's just pull out uh jeffrey himes 33 in the third book for a relevant did himes like slip you a little promotional here i I feel like no i just i just think that he was he's a very astute critic of springsteen but like we're like we're saying, you know, it was on this River album that Bruce started to say, you know what, I really I should be a big star, because on his, you know, even on Born to Run in Darkness, he was more of like something of a cult act, right? You know, even though he'd been on the cover of Time and Newsweek, 
for Bourne to run, but he was like very reticent about trying to take the steps necessary to get up to the what we call the next level, right? And was very apprehensive about taking the leap from theaters to arenas. What's, you know, it wasn't until the Darkness tour that he'd started playing in basketball arenas and stuff like that. But it's like interesting. Like, it's easy to forget that he wasn't really like a singles artist. You know, like he had obviously tons of hit singles from Born in the in, in the USA, but yeah, like eight of them. But just like comparing him to like Tom Petty or something, like Tom Petty had so many like popular radio songs, and like his albums maybe are a little more interchangeable. Whereas Springsteen uh, has like just this run of like monumental albums, but like he doesn't necessarily have a ton of hits. Not until he busted into the into the top ten with Hungry Heart. Yeah, you know? but like even that, like the river doesn't have any other hits other than that. You know, even like he did that big arena tour a couple years ago. And if you're a Springsteen fan, you know the river and you know uh Stolen Car and all those songs. But it's not like Born in the USA where there's just tons of hits on this record, even though there's you know twenty songs. He wasn't a hits guy. He wasn't. He, but he, he resisted he, it. He was trying. He was trying to make that transition, as we see from his Elvis haircut. Were you gonna you're gonna cite some Himes we're, here? We're quoted. Well, we'll quote Bruce from the Jeffrey Himes book. He writes, or Springsteen says, or actually, this is a quote from Springsteen's book. I guess it's called Songs. Oh yeah, I don't know that one, but Springsteen says, "My heroes, from Hank Williams to Frank Sinatra to Bob Dylan, were popular musicians. They had hits." There was value in trying to connect with a large audience. It was a direct way you affected culture. It let you know how powerful and durable your music might be. But it was also risky and forced you to confront your music's limitations as well as your own. He goes on to say, Artists with the ability to engage a mass audience are always involved in an inner debate as to whether it's worth it whether the rewards compensate for the single-mindedness, energy, and exposure necessary to meet the demands of the crowd. Also, I felt that a large audience is, by nature, transient. If you depend on it too much, it may distort what you do and who you are. It can blind you to the deeper resonances of your work and the importance of your most committed listeners. In other words, it can make you corny as hell. Perhaps. And there's some pretty corny <laughs> corny numbers on here. So side three, you have we have point blank, Cadillac Ranch, I'm a rocker, fade away, and stolen car. To Probably me, the weakest side of the four, perhaps. You think? I would have to say. Because I think side four is uh side four is weird, but Side four is more of a side three in the traditional double album structure as far as being the one with the the weird songs on it, <laughs> as exemplified by Exile on Main Street. Right. So, I mean... But each, me the, each of the side four songs are, are significant, except the price you pay, which I think is a uh, kind of a, a weaker retread of the promised land. Yeah, or, I mean... Drive all night. I've I've had problems with. I don't. Uh, although that was another but it song. Is, but it is significant. It is significant. Um, and it's Bruce's first turn uh, 
playing the piano. Yeah. In his significant decade. I with mean, Roy Ben more moving over to the organ. You know, just the just to buy you some shoes, that whole thing. I, mean, I don't know. Bruce, I don't know about that. I mean that was another song hearing it live made me appreciate it more. Um well, I but, bet your listeners at home would appreciate it a lot more if they heard it in the form when it first appeared on the Darkness Tour in 78 when it started out as an interlude in the song Backstreets. Really? Oh, yes. Backstreets on the Darkness Tour that used to extend to like 11 or 12 minutes. and uh, But, you know, he would do the bulk of the main song and before he went into the coda, Hot on the back streets. Yeah. That part he would do drive all what we later came to know as drive all night, which was kind of just like more of a semi improvised kind of a kind of a what they used to call a rap. Yeah. Before rap music as we know it came along. Well so And that also provided the seed of his uh his later song Sad Eyes. Oh, yeah. Which was a, uh, I guess that was a Lucky Town outtake. Later covered by Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I'm not. Version, yeah. Well, okay, so we skipped over side three here. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I like side three more than you do because um, Stolen Car, um, one, of my, one. one of my favorite songs on the record. Yes. I'm a rocker. I'm very weak song. You, could, you know, and... It just makes easily me easily can get tossed away. Toss that away. I think of a song like uh, "The Man Who Got Away," which was released on that "The Ties That Bind" uh, box set. Uh, I mean, Bruce wrote so many songs uh, about crime for the river that I guess that kind of points ahead to Nebraska because uh, he hadn't really written any crime songs before then. But like, except for uh, "Meaning Across the River," "Meaning Across the River." That's true. Uh, but there's like the man who got away. There's like Stray Bullet. There's uh, Mister Outside. You know, there's a bunch of like songs about uh, uh, like criminals that he wrote for this time uh, that didn't make the record. Uh, but they're all like great rock songs. And like the man who got away uh, is a personal favorite of mine. And I would easily plug that in in the space of I'm a rocker. Uh, Cadillac Ranch. I like. Big fan uh, of that one. That's a good song. Which, as we know, provided the foundation for the great Daniel Johnston song, Funeral Home. You ever notice that? No. You know that song? Yeah. Well, you know, Daniel Johnston sings, Funeral Home, Funeral Home, Gone in a Funeral Home. Oh. Cadillac, Cadillac. You, you listeners at home. You go and queue up those two, and you'll see what I mean. So that makes it a little bit uh, sentimental for me. Daniel Johnston, super fan that I am. And then you got Point Blank on there. Point Blank, not not one of my favorites. Really? That I like song Point is Blank like a, lot. a that's like a. Well, he had he had played that one on the Darkness tour as well, and that song to me feels like it's sort of stuck. Between the darkness era and this, the era of this river album, a little bit of diet darkness to me. <laughs> See, to and me- also, I heard one. There's one concert recording that I tried to find in my research for this podcast that I couldn't find, where Bruce says his all-time, what's got to be his all-time worst piece of stage banter, 
And he's usually one of the all-time stage banter masters. But there's some concert, and maybe you podcast listeners at home can dig this up. But he says, this next song that we're going to do is about waking up one morning and finding out that you've been shot point blank. <laughs> Which feels like he, he was thought that he had a better punchline than he actually did going into it. Couldn't find it. He might have just been like, oh, I lost my train of thought. I let's, just, let's, just go, let's just go into <laughs> it's it. It's like I had something. Oh, shit. I lost it. Okay. Uh, it's about being shot point blank. I mean, That's to, one of the dangers of being taped as heavily as he was in those days. To me, I like that song. I, I think of it as a great, showcase, a great showcase for the professor, Roy Batan, especially live versions of that where he would you know, sometimes interpolate like uh, Ennio Morricone. Uh, like Once Upon a Time in the West type grandiose piano openings to that very dramatic. Um, I mean, I suppose it's it's a very writer writerly song, especially at the end. It kind of builds in a very you, you kind of feel it building in a very melodramatic way. Maybe in a way that doesn't feel as organic as like an Independence Day or or the River. Uh, but I don't know. Almost like he's trying to recapture the magic of the uh, live arrangement from the Darkness tour of, uh, what's it, Prove It All Night. Yeah. He's like trying to blow your fucking socks off with this song. and Maybe he's trying a little too hard, but doesn't quite get there for me. A song I love, and we'll go to side four. We were talking about this already, but uh, Wreck on the Highway has become a personal favorite of mine. I think it's a crucial song in, you know, we were talking about the river being a transitional record. To me, this is a song clearly pointing toward Nebraska. And how perfect since it's the final track on the album. Exactly. If you're listening to his discography. It's sort of like a little bit of preview. It also reminds me in a way, and this clearly wouldn't have been in his mind at the time, but it kind of almost makes me think like tunnel of love. There's like a tunnel of love element to that, you know, because it's not like Nebraska because it's not an acoustic song. It has some of the thematic things from Nebraska and the influences of you know, country music. He was a big country music listener at this time and folk music, of course. But um, just the idea of what that song is about, you know, being uh, in a relationship and, and being worried that you're going to lose it. And, you know, uh, talking about this guy, you know, you're, you're driving home and you see someone on the side of the road who's dead. And it makes you think about your own mortality and think about the mortality of the people who love you, uh, which is a pretty deep thing to be contemplating when you're 30 years old and you don't have a family yet. You know, he was just imagining what that would be like at that point. And uh, it does kind of make me think a little bit about what he was going to be writing about at the end of the 80s with Tunnel of Love. It's kind of a prescient song in that way, I think. Because uh, that's what that whole, you know, Tunnel of Love, at that point he kind of had been through the other side already. He'd been married, and he had failed at it, and he was writing about it. Uh, he wasn't imagining it anymore like he was on the river. Um, so, yeah, I like it's, that song a lot. It's a great one. Yeah, it's great. Um, so Ramrod, slightly forgettable. Forgettable song. So, But a memorable song in the, uh, in the um, Live in New York. 1998 yes reunion tour concert film 
I have to say. I mean, I think any of these songs sound great live. I mean, you know, that's Bruce and the E Street Band, so he could probably rescue a lot of these songs. Even again, again, like Drive All Night, a song I'm not really fond of on the record. You know, you mentioned its roots as sort of part of Backstreet's, like the version of that from the Darkness Tour. I've heard other live versions of just, you know, that specific song that I've enjoyed. Which was his longest... At like eight minutes and change or whatever it was. Yeah. That was his longest post-75 song yeah. until it was dethroned by, can you name Is the song? The, the, the Queen l- of the Supermarket? No, no, the, the Cowboy Pete song? Yeah, Outlaw Pete. Outlaw Pete, yes. That's, From- a, that's a rough one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Christ. Yeah, that's, that's in the running for worst Springsteen record, I think. I mean, High Hopes, I think, is is the worst, although that, that doesn't that's feel like... like a, that's like almost like a... Traxy right. sort of uh, non compilation so, album. So just going through here, I mean, but but, uh, but I will say that High Hopes is definitely his most Sopranos sounding album. <laughs> That's true. Almost every song on it sounds like they're trying to be theme song for the Sopranos reboot. It's true. So I mean, just going through the the track list, the songs that we don't like, it doesn't get it down to like a twelve track album it gets it down to about a 16 or 15 track album and see because to me with the because we were talking about you know if you were going to make a single album version of this which by the way bruce did that he made a single album version right in 1979 the ties that bind right album which is on the which is in the box set and it includes i think roulette is on the single album version and i think be true is on there which didn't make the river and loose ends loose and ends. cindy and city which are i mean loose ends would be a song that i would put on the double record see that the thing about it is that i don't know if i would want a single album version of the river i would just want to cut some of the weaker songs and replace them with one of the like 50 tracks or you know, outtakes that there are from this album i mean the river to me is like the richest period for outtakes. I mean, the darkness era obviously has a lot of great outtakes, but the that outtakes disc in the Ties That Bind box set is like so great. And also the songs that are on tracks from this era. Even songs like Where the Bands Are, which is not I did listen to that one today. That is a very That's such a very great, complete, satisfying song. It's not a major song, but like I like it more than you can look, but you better not touch. Like I, although there's like the, I think there's like a rockabilly version of that song. It's like a, it's like a faster version of you can look, but you better not touch. Which I is already like, plenty fast. Yeah, on it's, the official album version. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I feel like there's like an alternate version of that that is a little more rocking. Um, but yeah, like crush on you. Like, why not put where the bands are instead of crush on you like if you just want sort of like a fun rocker or my favorite outtake from this era from small things big things one day come oh yeah which was later uh bruce gave away to dave edmonds from rock pile oh yes another questionable if he's gonna keep hungry hard i think he could have kept that song it's also significant, I think, that that song, Bruce's version, was not on tracks, 
but it did appear on the later compilation, The Essential Bruce Springsteen. Okay. Seeming to admit that it's an essential song, <laughs> which I agree. I'm trying to, I don't want to overlook any crucial other outtakes from this time. Like, Take Them As, they, as It Comes is another great song from this time. Um, yeah, he just wrote so many, uh, like, kind of great. Living on the edge of the world. Living on the edge of the world. This is a good one. Ricky wants a man of her own. I wanna, I wanna uh, be with you. Great song. I don't understand it. You're not pretty at all. That line. It's a great line. Not unlike his earlier, uh, "You ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right." Yeah, exactly. He's, he's How a, romantic. Yeah, he's a little. Uh, well, he got more and more interested in putting aside the romanticism and talking about. You know, romantic or love-based, relationship-based concepts in a more realistic kind of a way. So the verdict here, The River, great album, surrounded by better albums. Is, is that the, the I wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't the quickest eh, way to put it? I, I mean Well it it's it is essential in laying out the terms of what Springsteen would go on to do. You know, this is the album where we really meet the character who would define our idea of Springsteen's narrator from that point on. Right. You know, like we're looking at this sleeve here and we see some images, some concert photos from the Darkness Tour. And this to me is a, quite a different Bruce from the one that we see down here in the band portrait with him looking like Elvis. Right. You know, in the live shot, he's got the leather jacket on. He's like a little more of a, not exactly a tough guy, but he's still trying to embody his kind of West Side Story, Marlon Brando, Wild One kind of a character that on this album, I think, would really get put away in favor of more of like a John Fogarty type every man right you know when he's coming into the 80s you know like this was what he was going to be in a new decade and like you said i i think it is the sort of emblematic springsteen in a lot of ways that uh he's not the ragamuffin springsteen of like the first three records or like the the samurai of darkness he's this more like he's the populist arena rocker Populist, yes. Who's like embracing having hits? You're and, saying he's kind of the rock and roll Donald Trump of his time, <laughs> as if I if I hear you correctly. This was when populism had uh, had positive connotations. Imagine uh, that, to folks it. at home. But uh, can. but like you said, I mean, he goes from this into the Nebraska period, which is also the same as the Born in the USA period. Like those albums. Are made at the same time, essentially. I mean, he he and records, he could, and he could have easily done uh, the River Part Two, in a way, and gone for that more three dimensional approach, integrating the more bleaker, Spartan songs in Nebraska, right, with the more lighthearted Born in the USA material. Yeah, it's interesting because you know I said this earlier. I think it is true that this is the most sort of band oriented album that he made. He wants where, to be where the bands are. Exactly. It, it just sounded a lot. He wasn't kidding. And he, it, it <laughs> seems like the goal of the record was to capture what the E Street Band sounded like live. But then yeah, he goes into, into Nebraska, which is a totally opposite direction. And then, you know, he, he does Born in the USA, but like 
Nebraska was the beginning of him recording by himself, and it, that became a big turning point for him and how he approached records. And it was kind of the beginning of him starting to pull away from the band. I mean, in a way, I guess you could say the river was the culmination of his partnership with those guys and maybe the beginning of the end. Right, because he left he left them behind on the Nebraska album and then of course Born in the USA had the departure of Miami Steve. Yeah. And he went off to pursue his solo career. And I've read too that Bruce wasn't giving him enough agency. Well and I think too that he his sideman gig. I think he was starting to feel ambivalent about the band too. I think because again he you know he made Nebraska by himself. He you know, Though tech- he tried to record the Nebraska songs with, with the, the band. But like, and we're all looking forward to the inevitable Nebraska box set in the next yeah. couple of years. Well, I'm sure that is going to have those much anticipated, well, see, legendary like, electric right. When well, I feel like that has to be like a Nebraska born in the USA box set because I feel like that era is so intertwined. Because, right, because he had recorded half of the songs for Born in the USA before he right did Nebraska. And I'd read too that like he wanted to he he thought about maybe doing more Born in the USA by himself because technology had advanced enough where you could Right, Jeffrey Himes talks in yeah, his book about he, how uh, he, could he, he got set himself. up with an eight track studio at his home in LA. Yeah. Very telling. The city that would try and steal Bruce's soul so many times. Particularly heard, on Human Touch and Lucky Down. Have you heard that song The Klansman? Sure. That's uh, like that's when I mean now we're getting into Nebraska and the Born in the USA period, but um, I feel like he was sort of inventing back then what bands like War on Drugs and Kurt Vile would sound like thirty years later, where it just sounds like Born in the in the USA style songs, but you know, just pared down, like uh, using a drum machine and you know it's like bombed out arena rock kind of sound i mean this is the the depth of his catalog and the extent of his influence that his cast off and his weird little experiments <laughs> grow on to be subgenres of their own yeah well patrick i appreciate you hauling out a stack of books hauling out this record talking about it with me it's been absolutely my pleasure and it's still number five. I think it's number five. For, ah, Wait, man, but man. before we go, I have one thing in my notes that I have to bring up. Okay. I was ragging on uh, I Want to Marry You yeah. earlier. And that song is basically whack. <laughs> but I do have to say, in praise of that song, one particular line where he says, uh, let's see. Where is it? I see that lonely ribbon in your hair. Tell me, am I the man for whom you put it there? I really appreciate that he said, for whom. I mean, like, that's really good grammar. And a lot of rock lyricists don't take the time to be grammatically correct. And he went there. Am I the man for whom you put it there? So hats off to Bruce. And presumably they were on the edge of town. Uh, Always. they were contemplating that patrick it's been a pleasure always fun talking with you the man pleasure is all mine thanks so much for coming over
honored to be on this podcast. But we are honored to be here. Beautiful. And we'll do it again soon. I, I know you want to be a friend of the podcast. You have to be on I one do. more time. I'm, I'm really looking. I'm really wishing and hoping for my second appearance. You're an acquaintance of the podcast now. Friend. You you we'll have you on again. I'm on I'm on nodding terms with the <laughs> podcast right now. Well, anytime uh, next time I come back to New York, because I know you like to do these in person. So next time I'm back, we'll have you back on, and then you'll officially be a friend. Or point. when I'm in the Twin Cities on uh, exactly March 17th, if you people out there feel like coming out to St. Paul's Turf Club, yes, I'll be there. Just oh, to get a little excited for in. that! Is that just going to be you? It's going to be me and my pianist friend Alex Malini. Oh, that's going to be great! Excited. The Turf for that. Club, March 17th, folks, and right. don't be shy about uh, double checking me on that date. Okay, well, we'll at talk then. Cough.com. We'll talk then. I don't know. And maybe I'll bring a microphone, but maybe we don't have to always have a microphone going. But you know, maybe we will. Maybe we'll have more to talk about by then. It's always, it's always <laughs> stuff happening. All right, man. Thanks again, dude. Thank you. All right. That was me and Patrick getting into it with the river. And it was fun talking to him about this record because, you know, most of the people I've talked to in this series, they're talking about their favorite Springsteen record. And the river isn't his favorite record. Uh, by Springsteen, even though he loves it. But he was a little bit more critical of some of the other guests that we've had. And uh, that was a fun perspective to get. I'm sure there were people listening who were like, I want to marry you is a great song. Why are they ripping on that song? Or Crush on You is great. Don't knock that song. But it's nice to not be totally fawning in this series. So I appreciate Patrick for the thoughtfulness that he brought to the episode and all the homework he did. He was very great. We have other guests later in this series who take a similar perspective, who love Bruce, they're big fans, but the particular record they're talking about, they're maybe a little bit critical of. So it's it's fun to get into that and to explore that and hope you guys enjoy that. I want to give a shout out to our producer, Derek Madden. Derek, thank you, as always. Also, shout out to Josh Copperman. Thank you for writing our theme song. We love it here. And uh, thank you to our audience for listening. You know, it wouldn't be as much fun doing this if I were talking to myself. So thanks for listening and being such a supportive group of people and making this podcast possible. Uh, We wouldn't do it if it weren't for you. So thank you so much for your support. We have four more episodes in this series left to go. Hope you guys are enjoying it so far. We have a lot of great Springsteen music to talk about uh, here uh, in the 20th Century Boss series. So uh, let's keep going. We'll have two more episodes up next week and two more after that. So Thanks again, guys. We will talk to you again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.